welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over 10 years of experience. And this is Trisha, and I'm really excited to get on the open Corniche next week. What is a Corniche? It's a seaside road. Oh, okay. I'm going to the coast next weekend with a couple of gal pals, so I'm excited. That does sound fun. I love driving on the coast. I mean, until it gets super windy. Those of you who don't live in Oregon, it's some very windy, cliffy coast. I don't mind that. Oh. I mean, I like looking, but I'm not the... I tend to gaze at the ocean, and I, I kind of steer that way, so I'm a little bit scary. That makes sense. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't drive. I'm hoping not to, but I'm assuming I will. <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> uh, welcome to Addicted to Murder. And um, we are going to put the social media at the end today. Because I think that makes sense. Give it a whirl that way. Yes. So. Not bogged down our opening quite so much. Right. So uh, I guess we can just say um, we finished up Robert Hansen, Bob Hansen, a.k.a. the Butcher Baker last week. Yes, we did. And he was just a two-parter because, as Courtney kind of pointed out at the end, he just didn't turn out to be all that interesting. I know. It's kind of a bummer. Yeah. But so. this guy that we're starting today, he is interesting. Holy Moses. Um, I'm going to do the question, and then we'll talk a little bit about what we're getting into, because it's kind of a big mess. Sounds good. Keep it away. So it's my question today, and Courtney, as we look at these serial killers, and some of them do get put on death row, such as Ted Bundy, um, they had a last meal. What would your last meal be? Ooh, that is such a hard question. Because I really like food, mm-hmm. just in general, all types of food. Um, you know, I think I might go, like, breakfast and go with, like, blueberry pancakes. That's it? You can have anything you want? Yeah, blueberry pancakes. Maybe some chocolate milk. Dang. Yeah. Okay, well, you know. Simple, delicious. Carby. Carby. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of on the opposite. I would do garlic bread, mm-hmm. Dungeness crab, salad with vinaigrette, and rice seasoned with Johnny's seasoning salt. That is very specific. I've thought a lot about it. I really have. I mean, that's kind of weird, but I've actually asked this question at, like, game night. Oh, all so. right. <laughs> okay. Well, well, there we go. <clears throat> thanks for that answer. Yeah. So um, the case we're covering today, it's going to be kind of a long one. We're doing it all in one, um, was suggested to us by a listener in Belgium, and it was a man, and actually he had accomplices that we had never heard of. And it's a really disturbing case because um, it's involving harming children, um, killing them, molesting them, etc. So if that is something that might trigger you, just don't listen to this episode. Um, and I also want to note that this episode will illustrate what we know about Marc Dutroux, who they um, named the Monster of Belgium. But we will also focus a lot on one of his surviving victims who wrote a book about her experiences. And her name is Sabine Dardenne. And apologies ahead of time if uh, we mispronounce any of these names. They're mostly French. And, um, yeah, we, we, we're doing our best, but I'm sure we'll screw something up. So, anyhow, um, we hope to convey, you know, so what takes place mentally with the victim as a crime such as this, but also what's going on with Mark as much as we can figure it out. 
Sounds good. Let's jump in. Okay. So Mark Detro was born November 6th, 1956 in Islis, <laughs> Belgium, which is like a suburb of suburb of the capital Brussels. So Dutro is the eldest of five children. And both of his parents were teachers who at one point moved to the Congo for about four years and then came back to Belgium in 1960. Dutroux reports that he was beaten often by both of his parents, and in 1971, his parents divorced. So Dutroux lived with his mother, who was reported as being very dominating and abusive, until the age of 16, where he briefly left um, and became a male sex worker, serving mostly other males. It's also noted that he was a juvenile delinquent and petty criminal in his youth. So I imagine, based on what comes later, he was a thief as far as the petty criminal. And um, he probably started that at a pretty young age. So, Courtney, we really don't have much information on Mark's childhood. But from what we've discovered so far, can you tell us anything about what Mark might be going through? Male prostitution at age 16 seems like a very dangerous and thrill-seeking type of behavior. Do you think that's what's going on, or do you think it's purely the need for money? Well, uh, like you said, we can. a lot of this is going to be speculation. Um, and so we can only speculate on what you know being beaten often by his parents really means. Um, but I think it's probably safe to assume that the physical abuse he endured was pretty traumatizing. Um, you know, and he was also the oldest child in his family. And there is some research um, that suggests that oldest children are often held to higher expectations and are more likely to be physically abused than their younger siblings. Um, I just thought that was sort of interesting, some kind of birth order um, ideas. Um, And then we also know that youth who've experienced abuse are more likely to engage in illegal behaviors like theft, um, sex work, substance abuse, that kind of thing, and report increased depression as well. So if we assume that Mark was experiencing, you know, all of these factors, um, then it's not surprising that he would run away um, kind of as soon as possible, age 16 in this case, you know, and in terms of the the sex work, it's hard to say what role that may have played um, in his life at the time, knowing what we later found out about, you know, his sexual proclivities. Um, but really, anytime there is a teen engaging in sex work, I think we have to assume, first off, that it was survival sex, um, you know, doing what he had to do to get by. Going back a little bit to what you said as the elder eldest sibling, um, usually getting more of the beating than the younger siblings, do you think also that the elder siblings might put themselves... Um, in that situation to protect their younger siblings? That is absolutely something that happens. Okay. Mm -hmm. So by age 19, Mark had found and married his first wife, known as Francois D. They had two children together. Mark reportedly beat this wife, and he was a philanderer. They divorced in 1983. So during this time um, that they were married, Mark became an electrician. He was also involved in sex trafficking and car theft. And he was able to make a lot of money in these enterprises and eventually would have seven properties. He was jailed previously for these crimes in 1979, but it carried a very light sentence for him. Mark eventually um, married one of his mistresses, and her name is Michelle Martin. She was a primary school teacher who would eventually have three children with Mark. And I want you guys just to think of Michelle 
as is like the Ghislaine, Ghislaine Maxwell to Jeffrey Epstein. In 1986, Dutro and Martine were arrested for the heinous crimes of abducting and repeatedly raping five young girls. Girls, little girls, not women, but children. For this crime, he was sentenced to 13 and a half years, and she was sentenced to four. Apparently, she would film him with the children and he and like take photographs, uh, pornography, um, all that, terrible things. Mark would end up only serving three years after the 1989 sentencing. So it took three years for him to get sentenced. Then he served three years after that. Um, and he got out on good behavior. So while in prison this time, he began to form a plan where he would abduct many young girls and try to create an underground network or society. He said it would protect them from the real pedophile sex rings in Belgium, and they would only submit to him. He would be their savior. Apparently, Mark's own mother sent a letter to the parole board advising against getting him paroled early, and I imagine she just knew what type of guy he turned out to be. And this is a quote from Wikipedia. The early release of Dutro was, was granted by Milchoir Wotheret, who was at the time the Belgian Minister of Justice. Dutro's release was ordered against the advice of both the public prosecutor and the psychiatrist who had examined him in prison, who stated that Dutro remained dangerous. So, Courtney, let's, let's recap here. Um, here's a young man who had a criminal childhood that involved sex work, sex work, theft, and other minor offenses. He marries a woman who he beats and has children and then divorce. He marries his mistress, who, said, who was said to be aiding him in these child abductions and rapes. He is released eight years early from prison for the kidnapping and raping charges. His mother warns the court that this is a terrible idea. What kind of person do you think Mark is at this point? Do you believe in his story of abducting young girls so he could keep them safe? Is he delusional or is he just a liar and a big piece of shit? Also, as Americans, we're used to child abusers having a lot more jail time for the type of crimes he committed, and these men are usually not safe in prison. Do you have any insight on how the Belgian prison system may differ from our own? Well, you know, there's a lot of, to unpack here. Um, so his pattern of criminal behaviors starting so young, um, you know, could be indicative of conduct disorder, which we've talked about before. Um, that evolved into antisocial personality disorder in young adulthood. Um, so just a quick review, you know, a person with antisocial personality disorder is likely to engage in criminal behaviors without remorse or fear of consequences. They lack empathy for others and may engage in cruel or abusive behaviors towards others. And they easily lie or manipulate others to get what they want. Um, all the while frequently engaging in risk-taking behaviors. Um, and so these behaviors are habitual and generally do not respond to interventions, i.e. They, they don't get better. Um, so even at this young age in his early 20s, um, it seems pretty clear that Mark meets this criteria. Um, and I mean, even his mother recognized it in him, um, that there was something not right. Um, you know, that all being said, I think that Mark's explanation about wanting to save these young girls from pedophile rings is complete bullshit. He would have had no real empathy for sex trafficking victims and no motivation at all to want to help them. I mean, he's literally a sex offender himself. Um, and then, as for the jails, I don't know much about the differences between Belgian and U.S. prisons, so listeners, feel free to correct anything that I might get wrong here. 
Um, what I do know is that, in general, many European prisons, prison systems, excuse me, prison systems have shorter sentences um, for most crimes than here in the U.S. Um, and I also read that around the time um, of Mark's first release from prison, Belgium was facing severe overcrowding in their prisons, which was listed as one of the factors for his release. Um, and not to mention that all of this occurred in the 1980s and across the board, sex crimes and child abuse were not taken as seriously by law enforcement as they would be today. It's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Well, this is messed up. So upon release, Tetro obtained a, re- a registration as an invalid. So he claimed that in prison he got sick and he was able to get compensation for this from the government um, to the tune of 800 euros a month. I tried to like Google you know, what that was back then and compared to the minimum wage that Belgian um, citizens got, but I couldn't figure it out. But it sounds like a fairly large amount of money to me. I don't know. Also, he claimed that he could not sleep, so he was also given sedatives and sleeping aids that he would use later in crimes against children. When he was released, he primarily lived, primarily lived in his house in Marcinel. He built a, he- a hidden room that was seven foot long, three feet wide and five feet high. So this would be used as his torture chamber slash dungeon for the girls he was going to abduct. So I'm like just picturing in my mind, that's not a very big space at all. No, it's not. I mean, that's like spreading, not Mm -hmm. even spreading your arms out Mm -hmm. and, you know, about my dad tall with another foot. Yeah, it's kind of like a bathroom. If that, yeah. The size of a small bathroom. Yeah, that's terrible. In June of 1995, Dutro kidnapped two eight-year-old girls. Their names were Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo. Sorry if I said those names wrong. They were abducted while they were on a walk by Dutro and or his accomplices. Both of these little girls were forced to live in that tiny dungeon. They were repeatedly abused and had pornographic pictures and videos taken of them. Some accounts say it was Mark's wife, Michelle, who took these pictures and pornographic videos. Per the... Per the documentary Courtney and I watched, these two young girls were too young to endure the abuse that Detroit wanted to commit. Their bodies were just too small, too fragile. So we decided to kidnap a couple of other girls who were older. So they were 17-year-old Anne Michelle and 19 Michelle and 19-year-old Effie Lambrex. These two were on a camping trip in Ostend. It is thought that these two were abducted by Jatro and his drug-addicted accomplice, Michelle, a different Michelle. It's a guy. Lelevre. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Dutro would reimburse Lelevre with drugs for his help. These two new girls were at first kept upstairs, chained to walls, but eventually taken to another one of his properties. So at this point, he has very young girls in one house in that little tiny seven by three room and then two older teen girls that he is also raping on a regular basis at a different house chained to um walls up in the bedroom well okay so it turns out that these older girls were just too much trouble for detro they were able to fight back harder they made multiple escape attempts and it was just too much detro decided they had to go so allegedly he used some of the drugs he was given by the government and it made them fall asleep he then buried them alive in his property's backyard. Alive. Courtney, I don't know about you, but that is one of the most horrifying things I can think of. What do you think about this grotesque excuse for a human being now? 
Well, you know, Mark Dutroux really is a despicable example of a person, um, for sure. And, you know, I consider myself a sometimes excessively compassionate person, but I have a very, very hard time finding any empathy or understanding for adults who harm children. I just, it's really hard for me. Um, and at this point, I feel pretty confident in labeling him as a psychopath with sadistic tendencies. Um, we haven't really talked about sexual sadism much with the past few killers that we've talked about. So just to kind of refresh everyone's memory, a sexual sadist is a person who derives pleasure, ar arousal, um, and sexual gratification from inflicting or watching the pain and suffering of others. And, you know, in the, the criminal justice system and in forensic psychology, like, these are the worst of the worst offenders. And Mark definitely fits the bill. Okay, sorry for that. So late, in late 1995, Detroit was being held in jail for possible involvement in stolen luxury cars. So at this point, he gets arrested. Um while those two little girls are still housed, okay? So please note, sometime prior to this incarceration, it was rumored that Detroit killed one of his criminal accomplices by drugging him, torturing him, and then by doing something with his testicles and then burying him alive at one of his properties. So this man I speak of was involved with this luxury car theft, so I'm just bringing that up. Okay, so at this point, he still has the two little girls captive in the dungeon in his main residence. He has already disposed of the two older girls, while he was incarcerated, he asked his wife, Michelle, to be sure to feed the two eight-year-olds, as well as his dog. Apparently, Michelle was too, quote, scared to go into the dungeon to feed the little girls, so they unfortunately starved to death in that tiny hole in the basement. A tiny hole with no natural light, no real airflow, no plumbing. I can't imagine how terrible and terrifying and desperate it was for these little girls. And my morbid mind did bring up the question, what did the surviving one go through before she died watching her friend die first? I can't even, like, go there. I kind of did. But, Courtney, what the heck is going on with his wife? She claims she couldn't handle going down there to feed them, but she has children of her own. Doesn't she have, like, any sympathy for these kids? She was a primary school teacher for gosh sakes. What was the term that they threw out in that documentary? I couldn't remember it. The one about the couple sort of sharing the same mindset, her and Dutro. Um, yeah, so the documentary we watched um, suggested that Mark and Michelle may have been suffering from what's called a folie à deux, or loosely translated to madness of two. Um, so the more clinical term um, for it would be a shared delusional disorder where two people or more um, develop and hold on to the same delusional belief about something. Um, I personally don't think that this fully applies in this case because I believe that Mark knew exactly what he was doing and just didn't care that it was wrong or terrible. Um, so I don't think he was delusional at all. Um, I do think it's possible, however, that Mark convinced Michelle to go along with it, likely through the use of physical and mental abuse. I mean, he abused his previous mm -hmm. wife like there's no reason why he wouldn't be abusing this one even though it wasn't right. ever like mentioned specifically you know and i mean she reported being afraid of going down to check on the girls which may have been a conditioned response you know for example mark could have threatened to beat her severely 
um, or harm their own children if she ever went into his dungeon, like, without him, for example. And also, you know, when a person is exposed to this kind of horror, even just knowing what was happening or being forced to participate in it, it's sometimes essential for them to kind of completely dissociate emotionally from what's happening in order to cope and survive through it. I never thought about her being conditioned not to go to the basement. Kind of reminds me of Jerry Brutus's wife. Right, you exactly. Know, like she mm-hmm. wanted to go down there at first, but then he kind of made it mm-hmm. like threatened her enough to where she's just like, I, I, yeah. Right. Like maybe like cause she was, you know, the one who reportedly was taking pictures and, and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, but that, again, also may have been forced. We we don't really know much about her. Okay. So after Detroit was released from prison three months later, he had no victims because he had killed the first two or the, the elder two, and then the two little girls died while he was in prison. So he sort of did a Goldilocks and Three Bears type of thing. So his first victims were too young to torture how he wanted to. His second set of victims were too old. They were too crafty, and they fought back. So now he decided to get victims who were in between. So he then kidnapped 12-year-old Sabine Darden while she was riding her bike to school. Now, Sabine was the one that wrote a book that I was talking about at the beginning, and it was about her experience with this monster. So we're going to shift a little bit from Mark Dutroux to Sabine's experience. Please also note that her book, called I Choose to Live, is a fascinating and heartbreaking tale, but I highly recommend it. So this is a quote from Sabine's book on how she was abducted. I just had time to sense it coming up behind me, but saw it properly only when right beside me. The side door slid open, and a man was leaning out, while another man was doing the driving. I didn't understand exactly what was happening, because instinctively, at this point, I closed my eyes. Even before I felt afraid... It felt as if I'd been grabbed from my bike, and the next second I was literally swinging in midair with one hand round my mouth and another covering my eyes. For a split second, my foot got stuck under the saddle, but then came free, leaving my bike careering on down the road on its own. In a flash, I'd, be thrown in, I'd been thrown inside and my satchel wrenched off my back. So I'm assuming she wrote her book in French and it was translated to English, um, so some of these words we don't really use in America, but I think the saddle was the bike seat. <laughs> That's what I assumed. So anyhow, some of this stuff sounds kind of um, odd. It's just most likely it's just because it's not an American written book. Mm-hmm. So Courtney, this seems like a pretty ballsy abduction. I mean, it was broad daylight, literally snatching a little girl off her bike while she's in motion. I kind of think of Harvey Kerrigan murdering that woman in a public park at dusk. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely brazen. Um, I mean, I would guess that Mark was probably feeling pretty invincible, given the fact that the police had literally searched his house when he was in jail, when he was holding those two eight-year-olds captive, and they didn't find them, and he got away with it. Yeah, I didn't mention that. Um, There were actually more than one time that the police searched his house, but this little dungeon he had was so cleverly disguised, and it was kind of encased by a thick wall. Also... He sort of brainwashed his um, captives to not make any noise if someone came, which we'll see later. Right. So, I mean, if you could get away with that, then, of course, you can get away with kidnapping a girl in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. It's that narcissism immunity? Yes. Or, okay. Exactly. Later, Sabine found out that these two had been stalking her for a week. 
Once she was in the van, yes, of course, it was a scary van, and her screaming and fighting proved pointless, Detroit tried to force her to take several of the pills, which she was mostly able to spit out. So these are the pills the government gave him. Eventually, they stopped the car and forced her to get into a box that she described no bigger than a toolbox. They basically had to fold her up to get her in and shut the box. They then drove to another location where they had to unfold her to get her out of the box. At this point, the driver had gone, and it was just little Sabine and Dutro. He took her into the house and up the stairs where he forced her to remove her clothes and then put a chain around her neck that was just long enough to get to the chamber pot about three feet away. Dutro kept visiting Sabine and telling her stories as to why she was captured. He told her that his boss wanted her kidnapped because her father, who had been a policeman, had done a bad thing and her abduction was vengeance. The boss would demand a three million euro ransom, which Sabine said there's no way her parents could have paid that. On the second day of her capture, Dutro started to do things with Sabine. She does not go into detail, but he was abusing her at this point. Dutro also began to brainwash Sabine into believing that her parents refused the ransom and therefore the boss wanted Sabine killed. Dutro informed Sabine that he would be her savior and keep her alive against the boss's wishes, but if she were to call or try to leave or anything, the boss would know and kill her immediately. Dutro then offered Sabine a choice. Do you want to live or die? Sabine's answer was to live, and so Dutro informed her. This is a quote. Okay, but then I'll have to hide you. I'll say that you're dead, but you'll still be but you'll still be alive, and I'll look after you. Obviously, I can't leave you here in this room because the boss would see you. These are his headquarters, you see, so he could turn up here at any moment. And if you had any idea about running away, well, he'd get you back just in order to kill you. A matter of honor. All the houses around here are under his command, so it's a bit of a tricky one. But I know a place, a secret place, where I could hide you. Courtney, can you tell us a little bit about brainwashing, how common it is? Uh, is it easier to do in younger individuals? Are you having any new thoughts on Mark Dutro's mental state as we learn firsthand what he would do to his victims? Yeah, so I think brainwashing is actually far more common than we like to think. Um, and really, we're all sort of exposed to attempts at minor brainwashing every day through media, societal pressures, politics, etc. Um, however, the specific coercive control that Mark used is more often associated with things like kidnapping victims, cults, and domestic abuse situations. And typically, it follows a pattern that starts with isolation. Um, so separate them from everyone that they knew who might be able to give them different information. Um, then breaking down that person's belief or sense of self, then offering a kind of salvation, and then rebuilding um, the self as the leader wants it to be. You know, so with Sabine, what we see is, you know, he isolated her by kidnapping her and locking her in a dungeon, um, told her that she was not safe outside and that her parents didn't care about her, tried to convince her that he was the only person who could keep her safe, and then introduced her to the, the new normal of what her day-to-day -day life would become. And so this type of blatant manipulation and lying just keeps giving credence to Mark Dutro's status as a psychopath. So um, the elder girls didn't buy his shit because they were older, I'm assuming. And when you're younger, it's just easier to believe what an adult tells you. You just take it as truth? 
Um, there is something to that. Um, I think also that the girls were abducted together, mm-hmm. so they oh. could play off each other. Um, probably had some role in that. Okay. Well, so Sabine was still groggy with fear, lack of sleep, and the drugs he kept giving her, but she eventually was taken down to the secret place where she would remain for 80 days. That was the tiny room in the cellar hidden behind a wall that was disgusting and dirty. She describes it multiple times in the book, and it's just absolutely filthy. She became absolutely filthy. There was a nasty mattress that she said smelled like pee a place for her chamber pot, and a TV that would only play Sega games. Throughout her book, she, you know, would talk about all the bugs that were down there, the terrible smells, the way her nose would constantly be be plugged because she was now always sick. There was a tiny inefficient ventilator he had rigged from a computer fan and light. He supplied her with a little milk, a little tap water, and bread. Most of the time, the milk was bad and the bread was moldy. Not enough to really feed her, though, as throughout her imprisonment, she was often starved. A pattern began. Sabine would be locked up in that horrible, disgusting place for most of the day where she only had her school bag and the console to occupy her mind, and the other part of the day, she would be escorted upstairs to have vile things done to her by Detroit. He provided her with very little in clothing, and she only had the same underwear she was abducted in for all that time. She would wash it whenever she could, but it took two days to dry. She was constantly forced to be naked during her imprisonment. He would allow her to bathe once a week, but only if he did it, and he would scrub her until she had welts all over her body. She also said that she had warts, and he was kind of disgusted by the warts, and he would try to scrub them off, and it was terribly painful. Eventually, her captor began to rape her. She would keep track on those days, of those days on a calendar she created, Those were the most painful days, and she marked them with two X's instead of one. Courtney, throughout Sabine's book, she describes various coping mechanisms. One of them was to constantly argue and scream at her captor. She absolutely hated him. She said she constantly tried to wear him down and came close on several occasions she thought to being killed because he was just so annoyed by her. She asked questions. She pestered him. She demanded things, although she rarely got them. She seems to really have taken a stand in the best way she could. Do you think this is typical behavior? I would think most children, including including myself, would cower in this situation. I think that a lot of that is just Sabine's survival instinct. You know, we all have our our natural response um, to fear, you know, that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And I mean, Sabine was clearly a fighter. And I think the fact that she kept fighting that gave her also like the will to keep living. She did say that there was two um, ways to refer to someone in French in you, vous, and vous. Mm-hmm. And she refused to use the personal with him. Like she was doing all sorts of things she could to mentally keep him at arm's length. Mm-hmm. Like, so. Yeah, which is a remarkably sophisticated strategy mm-hmm. um, for a 12-year-old, especially – um, in the way that that would counter his attempts to sort of manipulate and brainwash her mm-hmm. into trusting him. Yeah. So this is an example Sabine gave about the dialogue that was common between them. This is Sabine. This muck is disgusting. Stop whining and just get it down. I want to see my parents. Not possible. I don't want to go upstairs. I don't like it. Tough shit. 
So she said that she was just constantly talking back and, um, which I think is awesome. I just, I'm surprised. Um, but you know what? None of us knows what we would do in that situation until we're in that situation. Exactly. So one day Sabine told Detro that she wanted a friend. And a few days later, he told her he had brought back a friend for her. Now, Sabine at this point was like almost mentally broken. She actually thought Detro would bring one of her friends to visit her. Remember, she's convinced that she is there because if she were to leave, she would be killed by the boss and he was saving her and keeping her safe. She did have opportunities to make phone calls or run away, but she truly thought she would be killed. Anyhow, the friend Dutro brought for her was no one she knew. Here's a quote from her book. I didn't know where she'd come from, and as I still hadn't really worked out that I'd been kidnapped rather than rescued, I had no reason to suspect that she'd been snatched from her family either. I just supposed that he must have gone to see someone he knew and mentioned how he was looking for a friend for this girl who was getting bored with being on her own. This new girl was 14-year-old Letitia Delheads, D-E-L-H-E-Z, who had been walking home from swimming one day when she was abducted. When she saw Letitia, okay, so here, uh, now the quote's over. (laughs) So when she saw Letitia drugged and chained around her neck, Sabine felt instant panic. She asked herself, what have I done? Knowing that Letitia was abducted because of her. In her book, Sabine's very conflicted. She feels terrible that Letitia was taken like her because of her, but also hopeful because she was not alone. Letitia, when the drugs had worn off, recognized Sabine from the flyers all over Belgium. She told Sabine that her parents were desperate to find her. Sabine replied, they must not be that desperate as they refused to pay the ransom. Letitia was taken on August 9th, and fortunately, a witness saw her and went to the police. Dutro was born it, brought in August 13th for questioning. His houses were searched, but nothing was found. The dungeon he created was very well hidden, but two days later, Dutro and his wife confessed, and, August, and on August 15th, the girls were found alive. So, Courtney, Sabine says multiple times in her book how much guilt she still carries over Letitia being kidnapped. Her rational mind knows that she was a 12-year-old girl on the brink of mental collapse when she asked for a friend. And she also knows it was Dutro, not her, responsible for the kidnapping, but she still feels an immense amount of guilt. Is this perhaps like a survivor's guilt, even though both are alive? She reasons with, her, with herself that it had, if it hadn't been for Letitia's kidnapping, she may never have been found. Any thoughts you have on this? This is actually a very common way of thinking and healing for those who've experienced a kind of shared trauma. You know, there's that guilt about not protecting the other, not preventing the other from being harmed, or feeling as though they've done something to cause harm to the other. Um, I mean, it is unwarranted guilt, as the only person to blame in this situation is Mark Dutroux, but it can be a really hard feeling to let go of. Um. Now, Sabine wrote this book when she was 20, so she's, like, I think in her late 30s now, so I don't know what's happened since then, but she did say she refused to go to therapy. She said that she didn't need it. Um, She could figure this out on her own. I I mean, but she was still carrying around this guilt. I would think that therapy could help her at least um, come to terms with it. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I think it's very possible. I mean, the kind of trauma that she experienced, um, there's so much complexity to the thoughts and feelings that go along with that, um, that 
I think working with a good therapist could really help her if she ever, you know, felt like she was ready to do that. Yeah. I mean, the way she described it was that she just didn't want to think about it or talk about it. So she didn't as much as she could. I mean, because now she was infamous, infamous Mm -hmm. in Belgium. Okay. So the trial was held seven and a half years later. Trial by jury with 450 people who testified. Dutroux was tried for the murder of the two elder victims, um, Anne Marshall and Effa Lembrex, and also for his former accomplice. Um, his wife was tried as an accomplice. You can see parts of this trial on YouTube. It's pretty interesting. The system in Belgium, Belgium is different than the U.S. I mean, I saw more than one judge. Um, you know, The accused were put into what I assume was a bulletproof box in the courtroom to protect them from outsiders. Detro claimed he did not kill the eight-year-olds because he was technically in jail at the time that they starved, and his wife was supposed to have fed them. So, you know, the trial took three months, and he was found guilty on all charges. Detro received life in prison. Belgium does not have the death penalty. Michel Martin received 30 years, and one of his accomplices received 25 years. Michael received five years on drug charges because there was not enough to tie him to the kidnapping. Per Murderpedia, Detroit did not deny abduction of Sabine or locking her away for 80 days in a cell, naked and chained by the neck on a diet of water and tinned food, or raping her repeatedly, but he denied wrongdoing. I'm not a pedophile, even if it's true that I slipped up with Sabine at, at a time when I was lonely and needed affection. Okay, Courtney, final thoughts, diagnosis, curse words regarding this guy, and let's not forget his wife, the accomplice, who, by the way, was released 14 years early. Remember, she was partially, if not all the way, responsible for the actual deaths of the two eight-year-olds. So Mark Dutroux is a sadistic psychopath who does not ever deserve the opportunity to be around other humans ever again. Um, You know, the title of um, a song I really like by Martha Wainwright comes to mind right now. Um, the title of her song is called Bloody Motherfucking Asshole. And I think that seems to fit for him pretty well. Um, and that about sums him up, you know. As for his wife, yes, she was allowed or she allowed and even participated in some extremely horrific things that deserve punishment. Um, but I don't know enough about her to say for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if she was also one of Mark's victims herself in a certain way. Um, I also was reading um, that Mark was able to petition for parole in 2021, um, dependent on a new psychological evaluation. Fortunately, the assessor agreed that he is dangerous and should not be released. And this time, the judge actually listened to that advice, um, and his parole was denied. I imagine if he would have been released, um, unless he went into some super secret hiding he wouldn't be around for very long on the streets. Oh, there would be chaos, I think, Mm -hmm. in Belgium from the general public. We didn't really go into it, but this whole case really shook up Belgium and other parts of Europe. It was Mm -hmm. a huge thing. Um, The way it was handled from the get-go and, you know, his prior convictions and then the house is being searched. And Sabine said in her book, one of the officers that had searched the house while they were captive, you know, he, he couldn't find them, but they ripped him apart on the stand. He was in tears. And she said that she felt no animosity towards him. I mean, they were well hidden. They were conditioned to be quiet and not to cry out. Right. Yeah. And kind of following this case, there were 
a lot of changes made to um, kind of like Belgium's investigation and justice system um, because of how poorly um, kind of this case was handled. And, and, you know, this the twisted irony of the state paying this guy 800 years a month and giving him drugs that he used on his victims, you know, it's just all crazy. And uh, I guess one-third of Belgium's population with the surname Dutro changed their names after this because they didn't want, want to have any sort of affiliation with him at all. Right, and Dutro is a, or at least was a fairly common last name. In, I think, in, in Belgium. Probably in France, too. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, oh, it sounds French to me, but, you know, that's just my American ears. <laughs> I don't really know if it is. Yeah. Well, I believe they speak French in Belgium. There's three languages. Mm. Remember, um, I can't remember now, but the gal that suggested this um, that's right. responded to mm-hmm. my, at the very beginning of this, we used to chat out to every country, mm-hmm. but then now there's just too many of you guys listening to us. So, yeah, there's French, Bel- uh Okay, I can't even remember. I'd have to go look. Mm-hmm. But there is. There's three. <laughs> so anyhow, um, so that is the terrible, terrible case. And we really didn't touch on it too much. I mean, this we could have gotten really deep and really dark. Mm-hmm. But we didn't. I do suggest anyone to read this gal's book. It's, you know, it's not full of horrific details, but her like throughout the whole time she was there, her determination to get through it. And she never, I I don't know. It's just very admirable. And, um, I guess Netflix was trying to, or prime or something was trying to create a documentary and her and Letitia both refused to be a part of it. Like they really just want it to be behind them. They don't want to make money off of it. They don't want to glorize it. They, I mean, I think she wrote the book just so people would kind of leave her alone. She could just say, go read my book. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's understandable. Every time you have to tell your story, it's, it can be Mm re-traumatizing. So, um, we are going to do our social media now, Courtney. Yeah. So if you liked what you heard here on our episode, um, you can tell everybody all about it (laughs) by commenting, by reviewing, rating, liking, subscribing, all of those fun things at any of our social media. Um, So you can do that directly to us by emailing us at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, which is addictedtompodcast. Or you can find us on Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. And um, Twitter at addictedtomurderpodcast. See, even though I typed it out, I forgot something. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks, Courtney. Um, We do really need the likes, subscribes, and follows and all that. Um, It just helps us stay motivated. Uh, Courtney, you're picking our next case. Yes, um, and I've already done a lot of research about them, and he's pretty interesting. We are bringing it all the way back home to Eugene, Oregon. Shut your lying mouth. Just nope. kidding. You're not lying. I don't know nope. why I said that. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, I suppose it's Springfield, Oregon. Oh, well, that makes so much more sense. Yes. <laughs> Just yep. kidding. It'll be an interesting one. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and um, we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.